Good morning Cornerstone. My name is Michael Risk. I'm one of the pastors here. And today we're looking at Matthew chapter 16 verses 21 to 28. Please have your Bibles open as we look at today's passage. Prior to this year, my family and I had been living in Sydney, studying at Christ College. Our going to Bible College was a real blessing and an opportunity to delve into God's Word, learn theology, be introduced to subjects that I would not have had the chance to do if it had not been for such an opportunity. But I want to be honest with you. Our time over the last three years while we were at Christ College wasn't always easy. I went to Christ College with certain expectations. That study would be a breeze. That this would be a great time for spiritual growth. That these three years in Sydney would be over in a flash. And that we'd be back here in Tassie before we knew it. But my expectations of going to Bible College wasn't the reality that I met. A study was actually a challenge. I remember many times sitting in class and theological terms being thrown around and me having no clue what the lecturers were saying. There was also more than one time I sat down to start an essay and had no idea what the question meant. And my own devotional life didn't flourish like I expected that it would. A reading the Bible at points became an academic exercise rather than coming to God's word and finding comfort through it. And then there was the financial strain that we had not expected. On more than one occasion, Lauren and I had exhausted our savings and were scraping the bottom of the barrel. Our time, my time at college wasn't always easy. Our college was a time of being humbled, learning to depend on God, of finding comfort in the gospel. Not relying on myself, but completely depending on God. Finding strength in Him to be able to make it through those three years. Now, why am I telling you all about the struggles that I had while we were at college? It's because I want to tell you anxiety, frustrations and fears that can be caused when our expectations don't align with our reality. Now, we've all experienced this, haven't we? Perhaps with a new relationship, leaving home for the first time, starting a new job, getting married, becoming a parent. And I'm sure we've all experienced it in one form or another, even this year. Starting this year, 2020, with certain expectations. I know some of us have started university. Others are finishing year 12. Some are looking for work. Others were planning on making a big trip. Some of us had made big plans, and those plans have been put on hold. In 2020, we all had expectations what this year would look like, and even looking forward to them. But then these expectations were thrown out the window when we were met with the hard dose of reality of COVID-19. I can imagine some in our church would be feeling frustrated, some anxious, some afraid. Maybe even some of us are feeling lost at this point. All because our expectations don't align with our reality. In our passage today, the disciples of Jesus are met with a hard dose of reality. 
at Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 28, is a real turning point in the Gospel of Matthew. Last week, we looked at verses 13 to 20, and we were taken to first century Dark Mofo. And we looked at the question of who is Jesus? And we learned that Jesus is the Son of Man. Jesus is the Christ, and Jesus is the Rock. If you were one of Jesus' disciples, hearing all this, you would have been filled with confidence, filled with energy, ready to take the next step in Jesus' plans. You would have been almost ready to conquer the world. But what does Jesus do? Well, Jesus shares with his disciples God's plans and God's expectations. And we need to be reminded of this also. In life, we are met with various uncertainties. And we can easily get caught up with what is happening right in front of us. That we can forget that we are part of a bigger story. That we are part of God's bigger story. What is God's story? What are his expectations and his plans? Today, Jesus, in his grand turning point in Matthew's gospel, tells his disciples his plans and his expectations. Today, we're working from the following three points. Point number one, God's expectations for the Messiah. Point number two, God's expectations for discipleship. And point number three, God's expectations for the final judgment. Uh, Let's have a look at our first, the first of our three points. God's expectations for the Messiah. In our passage last week, in verse 16, Peter has just confessed that Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, Let's remind ourselves what the Messiah meant for the first century Jew. For the first century Jew, the Messiah was going to be a great saviour, one who would rescue them from the oppression that they were experiencing under Roman authorities. As one of Jesus' disciples, having been just told that your leader is the Messiah, this would have created all sorts of expectations. That Israel would be freed from their enemies. That your nation would be restored to its former glory. You would have been filled with hope, filled with joy. But what does Jesus do? Verse 21. Jesus told his disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem, to suffer greatly at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and the scribes, to be killed, and then on the third day rise. Did the disciples of Jesus just hear him correctly? That he was going to Jerusalem to be killed? Now put your feet into the shoes of the disciples for a moment. For one moment, you are flying high in the sky, your heads filled with thoughts and dreams of freedom. And then Jesus shatters your dreams and brings you back down to earth with the news that he is about to be killed. I can't help but think that this would be a feeling, the feeling of a child, just having been told that their parents are getting a divorce. They hadn't seen this coming. And they just get blindsided and told that one of their parents will no longer be in the picture. I can't imagine the uncertainty this would bring to a child. Not knowing what will happen next. The coldness they would feel. The uncertainty that lies before them. I can't help but think that this is what the disciples are feeling right now. Coldness. Uncertainty. 
lost in confusion. And they would be in such disbelief. And we can see this disbelief in Peter's reaction. Verse 22, Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him, saying, No, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And Peter does something quite unorthodox. He rebukes Jesus. A disciple would never normally rebuke their master. But because of his disbelief, because his expectations don't match up with the reality before him. Peter is in disbelief. He can't believe Jesus' words. So he says to Jesus, this can't happen. I won't let it happen. And how does Jesus respond to Peter's outburst? Well, he says, get behind me, Satan. Now, Satan is using Peter in an attempt to cause Jesus to stumble. Ever since creation, Satan has desired to thwart the plans of God. There is a grand spiritual battle before us, and Satan doesn't want God to win. Hence why Satan uses Peter at this point in an attempt to cause Jesus to stumble. But Jesus says, get behind me. You are setting your mind on the things of men rather than on God. Peter's expectations for the Messiah are not God's expectations. God's role and God's plan for the Messiah is to go to the cross, to bear the penalty of humanity's sin. In and through the cross, Jesus was going to reconcile and redeem his elect. As since the beginning, God has had a grand plan, and this grand plan was to reverse the effects of the fall and to redeem his elect through his Messiah. Jesus has just told his disciples God's expectation for the Messiah. And then he goes on to tell his disciples God's expectations for discipleship. And this brings us to our second point. Point number two, God's expectations for discipleship. Up until this point, what do you think the disciples' expectations for themselves would have been? When they heard the call from Jesus as they were fishing, and he said to them, Come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. When they saw Jesus' fame grow, and that he was teaching with authority and doing miracles, and that this authority had also been given to them, the power to to perform miracles was also given to them. I know if I were one of Jesus' disciples at this point, I would have to thought that I would be some sort of commander or general in Jesus' new regime. In my head would be the expectations that we would soon overthrow the Roman authorities. Jerusalem would be restored to its former glory. And I, as one of Jesus' disciples, would be someone grand, someone great. But what does Jesus say to his disciples? If anyone wants to come after me, he must take up his cross and follow me. Did Jesus just say, as one of his disciples, that we would have to take up our cross and follow him? What is Jesus saying here? Now on one level, Jesus was foretelling the death that each of the apostles were going to face. Our church history tells us that each of the apostles, except John, were martyred for their faith. 
Uh, it's interesting in the Greek, the words to testify is the word martyreo, which we get the English word martyr from. That to testify, to believe in Jesus, will mean being prepared to die for your faith. Again, church history has shown us that people have died for their faith, that if it meant keeping their life or denying Jesus, Christians would rather die than deny that Jesus was Lord. But this passage is more than just being told that we have to that we may have to physically die for believing in Jesus. This passage is also pointing to the fact that each of us must die if we want to live. Jesus says, For whoever wants to save his life, he will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. What does this mean? I think a great parallel passage to explain this is Romans chapter 6, verse 6 to 8. Let me read for us. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ... We believe we will also live with him. To take up your cross is to put to death sin and to be united with Christ. Our passage is referring to no longer living for the world and her fleeting passions, but to live for Jesus. Jesus says, For what will a man gain if he gains the whole world, but forfeits his soul and loses his life? Jesus says, If you could have all the money, all the power in the world, anything you wanted or desire, and it would be yours. Jesus says it wouldn't be worth it. For to gain the whole world and all its pleasures would be to choose the world over God. It is to, it is to choose sin rather than God. It is choosing death rather than life. All the joys, pleasures, money, excitement of this world doesn't compare to what Jesus offers us. And Jesus offers us life. I remember during my time in college, one of my classmates shared that he had given a youth group talk about drugs and alcohol. Uh, he was chosen for this talk because in his former life, he was a drug dealer and an alcoholic. And as he did this youth group talk, he opened his talk with drugs and alcohol feel good. And then he paused. And then he said, but they aren't worth it. Forever chasing after excitement, never feeling satisfied, always wanting more. It just isn't worth it. Are living for the world? Are you never have enough? But with Jesus, it is enough. In Jesus, you have already been given everything. In the Gospel, friends, we find deep satisfaction in what Jesus has done for us. How he has liberated us from the shackles of chasing the fleeting pleasures of this world and finding satisfaction in Him. And Jesus also gives us hope that is stored for us in heaven, eternal life. When Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, it's more than just talking about death. It's also talking about life. The follow me that Jesus is talking about is more than just going to the cross. It's also pointing to the resurrection. Jesus went to Jerusalem to be killed, but we are told that after three days he rose. Friends, in Jesus we are also given life, new life that is conformed to his likeness. 
But more importantly, it's referring to the resurrection. It's referring to eternal life. Uh, what can a man exchange for his soul? Well, nothing on earth is able to buy a place in heaven. Nothing but the work of Jesus and what he did on the cross. That in Jesus we have been redeemed and given eternal life. That's the gospel. A God's expectations for his disciples is not to be worldly rulers, but to follow him and to inherit eternal life. And this brings us to our third point. Point number three, God's expectations for the final judgment. Verse 27 of our passage says, For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what they have done. Now, if you were a first century Jew, what were your expectations for the final judgment? Well, you would know that a judgment was going to come, and that all the nations would be judged according to their deeds. But you took comfort that God was going to restore Israel. For example, in the book of Obadiah, it says this, from verse 13, let me read. The day of the Lord is near for all nations. As you have done, it will be done to you. Your deeds will return upon your own head. Just as you drank on my holy hill, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and drink and be as if they had never been. But on Mount Zion will be deliverance. It will be holy, and Jacob will possess its, his inheritance. Jacob will be a fire and Joseph a flame. Esau will be stubble, and they will set him on fire and destroy him. There will be no survivors from Esau. The Lord has spoken. People from the Negev will occupy the nations of Esau, and people from the foothills will possess the land of the Philistines. They will occupy the fields of Ephraim and Samaria, and Benjamin will possess Gilead. This company of Israelite exiles who were in Canaan will possess the land as far as the Zarephath. The exiles from Jerusalem who are in Zarephath will possess the towns of the Negev. Deliverers will go up on Mount Zion to govern the mountains of Esau, and the kingdom will be the Lord's. But what does Jesus say concerning the day of judgment? When he comes, he says he will reward each person for what they have done. But there is no affirmation of saving or redeeming national Israel. In the minds of the Jews, national Israel would be saved. But national Israel, just like all the other nations, have sinned. There is a reason why Israel went into exile. There is a reason why they are suffering at the moment under Roman authorities. When the Old Testament points to restoration of Jerusalem, what is it ultimately pointing to? I want to suggest it's ultimately pointing to those that have been grafted into true Israel, those that have taken up their cross and followed Jesus. Jesus has done it to his disciples again. Their expectations don't match the reality which is being presented by Jesus. They thought because they were Jews, they thought they were safe, they were secure. And now Jesus says that one is only safe and secure if they take up their cross and follow him. That when the day of the Lord comes, all nations will be judged. And only those who have taken up their cross and followed Jesus will be restored. And the question some of you may be wondering is, how does one know 
they have taken up their cross and followed Jesus. Well, Jesus says it's by our deeds. In the book of James, in chapter 2, Jesus says that you know a Christian by their works. What does this mean? Well, Jesus has given us the answer earlier. It's putting to death sin in your life and following him. It's living godly lives. If you are living for the things of this world, if your heart's desire is to accumulate lots of money, experience the world, go on adventures, live immorally, then you aren't living for God. You are living for the world. We are told that godly living is bearing fruit and keeping with repentance. This means turning away from our old lives and turning to Jesus. It's setting your mind on the things above rather than on the things below. Friends, I have to ask at this point, are you following Jesus? Have you taken up your cross? Are you living for him? As you look at your last week, were you living for Jesus? This year, have you been following him? The final judgment has already started. And Jesus will one day return. Verse 28 says that there are some, that there are some standing here who will not experience death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now this verse has bewildered the commentators. What does this mean that they will not experience death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom? I want to suggest that this verse is pointing to the resurrection. Jesus says in our text that on the third day he will be raised to life. He will conquer death and ascend into glory and he will be in his kingdom. The final judgment begins with Christ departing and the final judgment will end when Christ returns. Jesus here has reminded us in our passage the expectations of God and how God was going to redeem and save his people through his Messiah. That to be redeemed and saved, one needs to follow Jesus completely and one knows they are following Jesus completely by how they live. But what does this mean for us in 2020? Well, we are reminded that we are part of God's plans and his purposes. Many of us have started this year with our plans for 2020 thrown out the window. Our expectations for what 2020 would look like don't match the reality before us. And because of COVID-19, some of us have been left frustrated, others anxious, some lost, and some confused. But our passage wants to remind us that even though we may feel that our world has come crashing in on itself, our life has not ended. Jesus wants us to take our mind off the things of this world, things that are perhaps before us right now, and to fix our eyes on him, to fix our eyes on the resurrection where life is found. This means, friends, that as we go through life's difficulties, whether that is during this season of COVID-19 or any other future difficulties that life throws our way, we are to find strength and comfort in Jesus. Our Jesus has already secured eternal life for us. If he has done this for us, he can help us to overcome the challenges that life throws our way. And this passage has reminded us that life is more than what happens in the world. It's more than the big events that we planned for this year. The reality that Jesus has presented to us is that life is found in taking up your cross 
and following Him. And we can expect that when we follow Him, we will claim the ultimate reward, eternal life. How about I pray? Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this time together. Father, we thank you for the reminder of what Jesus has secured for us, that he has secured for us eternal life. Lord, as we are met with various difficulties in our life and what is thrown our way doesn't match our expectations, Lord, we pray that we would not find ourselves in a rut, but instead remind ourselves that we are part of a bigger story. Are we a part of your story? So, Father, we pray that we would continue to fix our mind on the things above and that we would continue to seek you and that we would continue to be transformed by you. Help us, we pray, to live godly lives each and every day by continuing to pick up our cross and to follow our Lord and Saviour, Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.